I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We're buzzing in here today because we've been messing around for 20 minutes already. Uh, Charlie is with us, so we know exactly what era of history we're <laughs> Charlie, who have you found for us today? Oh, I've got a real treat for you today. We have got Miranda Malins with us. She's a historian specialising in... Da, 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 Oliver Cromwell and the Protectorate. Ooh. Ooh. She's she's here to put the other side, so don't worry, it's not going to be a total boo episode. She's a trustee of the Cromwell Association, and her debut historical novel, The Puritan Princess, came out last year, and she's really busy at the moment writing its prequel, but she's got a bit of time to talk to us. Hello, Miranda. Hi, so exciting to be here with you. Thank you. Uh, we are thrilled, thrilled to have you with us. We love The Puritan Princess. It's a fantastic book. Um, so it's the story of Frances Cromwell, who a lot of people might not have heard of. Who was she and what do we know about her? Well, she was the youngest daughter of Oliver Cromwell and um very few people would have heard of her. I, I had barely heard of her when I started looking at uh, Cromwell's family in more detail. Uh, Cromwell and his wife had nine children and uh, effectively in two families, uh, five or six and then a, a baby who died and then a gap uh, of five years with no children. And then a, an afterthought pair of daughters, Mary and Francis. <laughs> and um, she uh, so she is still a, a child, really, all the way through the civil wars. And then when her father, Oliver, eventually becomes Lord Protector, so effectively head of state uh, in 1653, she is only about 14 um, and goes to live with him in the royal palaces of Hampton Court and uh, Whitehall, effectively as an unmarried princess. And, uh, you know, that's that's where we pick up the story with uh, Francis's marriageability in her life and uh, what's going to happen to her under her father's rule at his court. So we all know that uh, Alex is the biggest Oliver Cromwell fan in the country. I hate, I, I refer to him as Satan <laughs> Spawn. I can't stand him. Um, to the extent that we have another episode going out in this batch um, about the Covenanters um, and all the screwing over of Scotland that he did. And um, our interviewee said he was like a wrecking ball. So in the cartoon, he is swinging across Miley Cyrus style <laughs> in his pants on a wrecking ball. Because um, I have that little respect for the man. Um, 
obviously he was hideously boring and serious and he cancelled Christmas. I'm going to make you so angry. <laughs> uh, tell us about your research into the man. He didn't cancel Christmas, I'm lying. And how you have used that to create a very different impression of him in the book. You're so right, Alex. And actually, I love to talk with someone like you hates Cromwell. You're my perfect audience. Um, <laughs> and that's actually almost why I set out to, to be a historian of this period and then now to be a novelist, because it is so exciting and toothy and a brilliant challenge um, to, you know, to take on such massively ingrained assumptions about him. He is just one of those love or loathe figures in British history. And a lot of people, you know, think a lot of things about him which aren't necessarily true and are often the product of, uh, you know, propaganda that's been handed down to us uh, since Charles II, since the Restoration writers. And, you know, we think of uh, the horrible histories kind of version of Cromwell, you know, warty, uh, dressed in grey or black, looking really serious, um, killing the king, cancelling Christmas, pulling down maypoles, you know, generally being awful. Um, and, you know, actually, the, the more that I researched him um, for my PhD, which was about his um, decision whether or not to become king in 1657, the more I discovered that actually, you know, he was really quite different from that stereotype. He was a family man. Uh, he loved his sort of cultural pursuits. His court was very elegant and, you know, the arts and music were flourishing under him. He was much more tolerant than people think, more moderate. Uh, and he was a great conciliator. We think of him on the battlefield, you know, charging down the, the poor old Scots and the Irish. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, that's true. There's this martial period of his career through which he comes to power. Um, but then there are so many different Cromwells for all of us to explore. This is why he continues to exert such a fascination upon all of us. And for me, you know, the, the, the greatest fun about writing this novel um, was actually just to present the totally different Cromwell, a really colourfully dressed, fun Cromwell, drinking, dancing, smoking, hunting, hawking, hanging out in Hampton Court, looking at his lovely tapestries and statues, sitting around with his wife and daughters, uh, and generally just a very different kind of guy. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be putting that Cromwell before you. Still don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> looking, looking at the tapestries he nicked, yeah, exactly. palaces he nicked. But you're, you're right. You know, no one, no one in history is all one thing or all another thing. And someone like Cromwell is very, he's very easy to make one or the other. He's very easy to make completely the bad guy or to make this sort of shining beacon of an alternative republic. He is. There's this, there's this idea that every age makes its own Cromwell um, and we invest in him all of our hang ups. Uh, and, and he, you know, he's revered and he, he's, he's hated throughout the sort of post restoration period into the 18th century. He's held up as this, uh, um, you know, real kind of lesson not to ever have any kind of military uh, involvement in the state, any kind of dictatorship, power of the army is awful. And, and then he's sort of rejuvenated by the Victorians who find in him this, you know, kind of godly, uh, proto-chartist, democratic, parliamentarian hero. And then you know, his, his statue goes up outside West, outside Parliament. And uh, thanks to Carlyle and the other writers who write about him, he becomes an absolute national hero. His writings and speeches are bestsellers and they're in every house up and down England. Um, and then into the 20th century, again, his reputation plummets 
you know, when we when we have all the awful dictatorships and terrible upheaval with the with the world wars, you know, and then he's characterized as a military dictator. And then we come full circle again. And now, interestingly, um, there's a real disconnect at the moment between how he's perceived popularly and in popular culture and how he's perceived in academia. So in academia, it's really striking and it's commented on by a lot of historians that actually most Cromwellian civil war and interregnum historians have a very positive view of Cromwell. Um, whereas that that really goes against, you know, so much of the anger against him that's felt popularly. I'm guessing that none of those academics are Irish then. No, some of them are. and, and really? Yeah, and there's some really great work happening with Irish historians. I mean, the Cromwell Association, we had a wonderful conference a couple of years ago about Cromwell in Ireland and various Irish historians came over. Um, Michael O'Sukru came over and, you know, there's a lot of wonderful research going on across there. I mean, obviously, well, we, I'm sure you're going to ask me about Ireland in a, in a different question, but you know, again, we, we come back constantly, don't we, to the question of what are we doing as historians? What is the point of us? And the point of us isn't to weigh in and judge whether historical figures are good or bad or to advocate on their behalf. You know, our job is to investigate the past and to shine light on it and to examine what we think was important and why and what really happened. Gosh, I mean, that that must be actually, you know, aside from your academic hat um, on, that must be part of the fun for you in being a historical novelist is being able to take a bit of an opinion. And I have to personally congratulate you for making me feel some sympathy for Cromwell for the first time in my very long royalist life. Was this, was this part of the, the intention in writing a novel rather than writing a, a nice big fat biography of Cromwell? Did you feel that you could challenge the caricature a bit better in fiction than you could in nonfiction? Yes, I, I absolutely did. I felt that there's something about instead of lecturing and hectoring and saying banging on this drama of, you know, no, he's not this awful panto villain, you know, in, in, in academic writing, it's really nice actually just to just to bin all of that and just write a scene at his court <laughs> with him doing what we know he was doing, with everyone dressed how we know they were dressed, doing what they were doing, you know, <clears throat> the events happening and, and actually to present that Cromwell fully formed and say, OK, you know, I'm not going to lecture you. I'm actually just going to invite you back to, to stroll down the corridors of Whitehall with me in 1657 and see what you think. Um, and I also really enjoyed because I write the novel from the perspective of Cromwell's daughter, um, it's it's a brilliant sort of, uh, uh, well, excuse, really, um, for painting a, a, that that kind of portrait of him because he's being seen through the eyes of his daughter. Um, so, you know, she would think of him in, in those terms, you know, not completely unquestioningly, but slightly more heroic, but also very intimate terms. She sees him first as a father before anything else. Um, but I haven't given up on historical writing. I mean, I've got a I've got a biography of Cromwell and his family in mind. Um, and it will be interesting to see once I start trying to write that, which I'd like to write next, actually, how what kind of Cromwell emerges when I'm writing with that hat on. <laughs> Gosh. So the book is set at a crucial time for the Cromwells. What is going on in 1657? And what is the humble petition and advice? 
Oh, it's another one of those brilliant sort of 17th century terms, isn't it? You know, solemn league and covenant, covenant and humble <laughs> petition and advice and instrument of govern and self-denying ordinances. Um, they're, they're quite enough to put anyone off studying it, actually. <laughs> they're all very grand sounding. Well, very... Parliament is the one that makes me want to shoot myself because it reminds me of school. <laughs> I still don't get it and I just don't care. <laughs> they're all very grand and sort of alienating, aren't they? I completely agree. Um, but what's happening in 1657, and the reason I set the book there, is that this is the Cromwells and the protectorate regime at the height of its power. So Cromwell has been Lord Protector, effectively king, but over a Republican Commonwealth um, for four years at this point. Um, and he was installed as Lord Protector under, you know, by the army, really, in, in a bit of a coup under a really an army drafted constitution. Um, drafted by General John Lambert to call the instrument of government. What's happening in 1657 is that after various, you know, really bad experiments, particularly with uh, direct military rule at a regional level with the regime of the major generals, there's a real faction in Parliament and in the court um, to move the protectorate onto a more traditional and sort of constitutional footing, more of a King Lords and Commons affair, which, you know, Britain would have been used to and which people understood um, and so this 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 faction in parliament tried to persuade Cromwell to become king and the constitution that they um, suggest that he governs under is called the humble petition and advice and it is going to legitimize his rule because it's actually sanctioned and drafted by parliament as opposed to the previous constitution which was written by the army leaders. Um, so it, it's a really powerful moment in, in this protectorate where it seems that Cromwell is going to accept the crown, actually become king, King Oliver, King Oliver I. And, uh, you know, really at this point, when when he's being offered the crown, the Stuarts are just nowhere. You know, the Stuarts are not coming back. This idea of this being an interregnum between two reigns and the high road to restoration, you know, we're all there. Everyone's just sitting there waiting for Charles II to appear across the channel was not the case. They were all very upset, you know, worried in the exile court and Clarendon and the others because it, it really was looking hopeless at this point. Cromwell looked unassailable. Um, but he decides after endless, very Cromwellian kind of agonizing and lots of dialogue with God, um, he decides not to accept the crown because he thinks it will be hypocritical and because the army will never accept it. Um, whereas he himself has always been a monarchist. He actually believes that monarchy, a limited monarchy with a constitution and with a council and with parliament is the best form of government. He always believes that. Another myth about Cromwell, Cromwell, the Republican, Cromwell, the anti-monarchist, Cromwell, the man who kills the king and abolishes the monarchy. It's not true. He is a monarchist. He's actually really quite a conservative, moderate, middle of the road politician. Um, so, you know, is he going to become king? What would that mean for Francis? You know, she, she would suddenly become a princess. Charles II sends an emissary, the future Charles II, to suggest maybe that he and she should marry each other at this point, which would have been amazing. I mean, how that would have changed. <laughs> so it's this, it's this amazing point for, for the dynasty. They're moving in a, in a much more sort of traditional, relaxed direction. There's a lot of intermarriage happening between previous parliamentarian and royalist enemies. Uh, a lot of people who had previously refused to support these interregnum regimes are coming back into the fold. So the kind of base of support for the protectorate is gradually increasing. So it's, you know, 
it's it's all it's all looking good for them. And then when he is um, made Lord Protector for the second time round with the humble um, petition and advice, he says no to the crown, but basically yes to everything else. And so he's effectively really king. And he has this extraordinary coronation, in effect, in Westminster Hall with ermine and the baubles of state and all the foreign ambassadors and a procession through the city. The, the fountains are flowing with wine. It's an extraordinary moment for this East Anglian farmer. <laughs> and people call him your highness. Yeah, they do. And they they call his children your highness as well. They're given all the all the trappings. I think that's why. Freaking hypocrite. <laughs> I think that's why. That's why so many people look at Cromwell and 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 his achievements, and they're almost belittled by that because because he took all of those trappings. For me, it felt like Shakespeare's Richard the Third, where they keep asking him over and over, "Please be king." He's like, "No, I can't be king. Please be king. No, I can't be king. Please be king." Oh, right then. Um, <laughs> so it's it's sort of the the denying it three times. Yeah. <clears throat> But in fairness to him, he's being invested with the hopes of a lot of people. Um, you know, he does not seize power for himself. There is absolutely no way to demonstrate that. Even his detractors can't really argue that. That idea that is often peddled in sort of ladybird fiction, that um, <laughs> Charles I was executed in 1649 and then Cromwell took power, you know, isn't the case. And um, there's a whole series of constitutional experiments that happen first. And that try and work. We have the rump parliament, we have the bare bones parliament. You know, it, it, it's kind of endless agonizing by all of these people as to how on earth they find a constitution or a mode of government that's going to appease everybody. And as with all revolutions, it's so much easier to, to pull something down than what on earth you build in its place. So I have a lot of sympathy for all of them because they are under enormous pressure. They've got enemies on all sides. They're trying to appease a huge coalition. I mean, the coalition that defeats the king is such a coalition of different interests. And how on earth you would you would ever replace, um, you know, the, the monarchy with a system that would keep everyone happy um, from, you know, moderate, moderate quasi royalists right through to the levelers and through to the fifth monarchists. Uh -huh. Yeah, How do you do that? It's impossible. Once they once they got rid of that enemy in common, then all of the factions start yeah. appearing. I almost find that after last year, I have more sympathy because I understand how long that time must have felt when you have no when you have no end in sight, and uh, you know when we were all locked down and we didn't know when we were going to be let out. Yeah. That that's hard. So to think of all that that time passing and then trying to build something. And, and also the lost hopes of the Stuart cause. I totally agree. And I think that's why this period is so fascinating and has so much to tell us now. It's so modern, this period. It's amazing. I mean, when we were going through Brexit, <clears throat> constantly, constantly, MPs, journalists, newspapers, commentators were harking back to the civil wars and the interregnum, constantly. And it's because, you know, it, it, it was a similar kind of constitutional upheaval and overturning of everything and, you know, reinventing the wheel. And it's an extraordinary, you know, series of sequence of events and years where anything could happen. And that's another reason why I really enjoyed writing about it as a novelist um, and also in the present tense, because I'm trying to present um, to the reader uh, uh, life at Cromwell's court where they didn't know what was going to happen and whether it was going to last. I mean, as far as they knew, they were living under the first ruler of a new dynasty. 
And if that had happened, you know, Cromwell might well today have the status here that, for instance, George Washington has in America. So we have to remember that we're all a product of what has happened, you know, of what of the restoration. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Gosh, the, in your, your story, um, Frances Cromwell, the youngest daughter, has a very difficult relationship with her sister Bridget. And you've, you've kind of used the tension between these two to explain the tension that was happening in in the country and between the ruling factions at large. Could you tell us a bit about how they embody this struggle? Absolutely, Charlotte. That's such a good question. Um, and you, you've, you've definitely got, <laughs> you peel back the layer to work out what I'm doing. It is partly because, you know, I wanted to write about the women in Cromwell's family, but I didn't want to write a book, which was a secret sense of scenes where men came in and gave them news. <laughs> the whole thing mansplained to us, please. The whole thing mansplained endlessly would be so frustrating. Um, and I felt justified actually in having the sisters themselves represent these different interests and argue with each other about them because actually from what we know they did have very different opinions about the protectorate and Bridget the oldest sister uh, is married was married to Henry Ireton who was a a, a formative in the revolution in 1649 before he died Um, and is now married to Charles Fleetwood another kind of key army general figure Uh, whereas Elizabeth, the second sister, who Francis is very close to, is married to John Claypole, who is one of the MPs who is pushing for Cromwell to become king. So we have this the, the, the central faction uh, division that's happening in the court as the protectorate goes on between the military faction, who feel they were the men who won the war and who fought all these grueling campaigns and who put their lives on the line and spent nearly a decade in the saddle. There are those men who feel that they should have the voice, the preeminent voice in the state and in the direction of travel. But then there's the other faction, which are these more moderate, often younger uh, parliamentarians. Um, Some of them are almost even former royalists. We have Lord Broghill, future Lord Broghill, Roger Boyle, Edward Montague, um, future patron of Samuel Pepys. Um, A lot of these men actually eventually end up having massively successful careers under Charles II. So those are the kind of men we're talking about who are on the other side of this big debate, urging Cromwell to become king because they think that the country will be much safer and more secure and more stable under a traditional monarchical government. And at this point, they think the Cromwell dynasty as opposed to the Stuart dynasty is the best bet for that. 
So we have all these future restoration figures who, who are at the moment, they're hardcore Cromwellians. But anyway, the, so the sisters um, with their marriages into these different camps are absolutely at the heart of this divide um, between, you know, that are warring over the soul of Cromwell's regime. Is this going to be a military rule with the army in preeminent position? Or is this going to be a softer, more civilian, more traditional kind of rule, which could, which could bring back former royalists into the fold and, and heal and settle more that way? So that, that's the gulf that is happening. That's the tension that's happening in 1657. And it goes right into the heart of the Cromwell family themselves. Do we know what happened to the Cromwell children after the restoration? Yes, we do. Um, I won't give away too much uh, plot <laughs> <laughs> major plot spoilers I could give for the Puritan princess. So uh, listeners, please read the book. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, in, in general, and I would say... Um, that uh, Charles II. So I'm not. I'm not massive. I'm not completely a, a anti Charles II. <laughs> Charles II is is really quite generous and tolerant towards the Cromwell family themselves. I'm telling um, you now, if you were really mean to him, Charlie wouldn't have invited you on. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. I'm going to be magnanimous. See, that's kind of Cromwellian I am. Um, <laughs> Charles, Charles II does mostly leave them alone. Um, poor old Richard Cromwell, who's Oliver's oldest surviving son and heir, and who becomes Lord Protector after Oliver dies briefly for the nine months, uh, is forced into exile. And he has a really grim and solitary time, poor chap. He goes, he wanders around Europe for 20 years on his own, under living under false names, never with enough money. And he's a very young man. He's in his early 30s at, the, at that point. So, I mean, that's a grim life. He never sees his wife again, because by the time he comes back to England 20 years later, she's dead. Gosh. Um, so that's a really sad story. Um, the other siblings are allowed to sort of live in relative obscurity in England. Um, Bridget dies actually relatively soon after the restoration. Um, and uh, Francis and Mary, though, um, have very, very long lives. I mean, they live right into uh, the end of the Stuarts. They see off the Stuarts. They live. Wow. <laughs> yeah, amazingly. They live into the early years of the next century um, and uh, become these sort of uh, curiosities later uh, at, at the royal courts, especially after the um, after the uh, after William the Second and William of Orange and Mary come back, they're these real curiosities because they look a lot like their father. And uh, Cromwell at that point is so famous and so infamous um, that these the, these daughters kind of wandering around in high society, really, which they were, especially Mary, who was yeah. married to Viscount Falkenberg, who had a glittering career for the rest of the seventeenth century. Um, under uh, under uh, Charles, James, and William, so uh, they have it's a mixed bag really of their ex- their experiences. But and that's another reason why I just love this family because their story is totally unique. They come from absolutely nothing. They come from a total obscure obscurity as a Fenland minor gentry family who, at their lowest ebb, are nothing more than tenant farmers, not even owning their own land in the 1630s. By the 1650s, there are looking like they're going to be our new royal dynasty, living in Hampton Court and Whitehall Palace. <clears throat> and just as quickly, they fade back into obscurity. So it's it's just this amazing family of of of, of you know who are briefly our uh, briefly our royal family, really. Gosh, I mean, I have to say to our our listeners, when the world opens up, if you can possibly visit Oliver Cromwell's house in Ely. 
It is an amazing building. They do a great job of talking you through the story of the family and it's, it's just a wonderful place to go. Miranda, I can remember exactly where I was when I fell in love with King Charles and I became a royalist. So I would have been about, I can't, can't remember if I would have been nine or 10, but it was, it was at school and we were doing the Tudors and the Stuarts for our, mm-hmm. our project. And our teacher told us the story of King Charles putting on an extra vest on the day that he was executed so he wouldn't shiver and look cold. And it upset me so much, the thought of this. I know I was a highly empathetic child. Um, I was very upset to think that he didn't want to look scared and that he'd done this thing. And it really touched me. So I was, I've always thought about this story and how it can then color your entire life. Um, one way or the other. That's so the I was thinking about it's finding history for yourself when you're a child though. Yeah. So I was wondering, did you have a moment like that that made you fall in love with Oliver Cromwell and think, I need to, I need to sort of defend this man? Well, not, yeah, not defend this man so much as understand this man, you know, because he's such a giant and epic proportions, you know, what on earth, who on earth is this guy? <laughs> where, where did he come from? <laughs> Um, uh, but actually my moment would, it comes back to what you just said about visiting Cromwell's house in Ely. I visited Cromwell's house in Ely when I was a teenager. And um, just like you, it is such an evocative place. It's this beautiful timber framed house in the centre of Ely, just down from the cathedral. And it's such an ordinary house with an ordinary flagstone kitchen and a window onto the church. And, you know, upstairs rooms and everything. And I do remember going there and just thinking, oh, but hang on, that this guy ends up kind of king, but what, he lives here until when he's in his 40s and no one's heard of him? So I think that that was my moment that I wanted to study him. And then I did my kind of uh, bit of coursework or whatever on him, you know, your, your individual study subject, whatever it was at school, about him. And then, you know, when I went to university to study history, I just, um, you know, carried on that interest and ended up ended up specialising in him and the period. But there is there is an element of uh, kind of the loving to prop up the underdog for me. But it's not it's not just about Cromwell. I'd say it's about the period, which I feel is woefully neglected in our popular culture and in our Absolutely. well in our story in our island story. I mean, I get I launched a campaign called Plug the Gap, which was all about finding all of those timelines and you know like you know the long wooden ruler that you have at school with William William Henry Stephen Henry Richard John etc and all the time that, that's the one that's, <laughs> yeah, that's I have the ruler one. that's it now have a look. That ruined all three of them <laughs> okay but it says you know in all of these timelines and information boards at royal palaces or houses or history books you just have this little gap it just says 1649 kind of commonwealth or it goes sometimes it goes straight through yeah commonwealth yeah and i i love that anomaly you know we have such a neat story in this in this country of our kings and queens and i love that this is the this is the gap this is the blip this is the what on earth's happening there mm. moment do you and want that, me to vindicate you both Go on then. Yes, go on. When the royal family were renaming themselves in 1917 and all these batshit crazy suggestions were going <laughs> King George and Queen Mary wanted Stuart. Spelt with an E-W, but they okay. wanted Stuart. But they were told, um, 
no. They were told one had his head locked off, one was a philanderer, and one was just, <laughs> well, we just don't talk about him. It's not a good image. Uh, so they moved on. But had they just been able to pick what they liked and someone hadn't come up with the Windsor thing, like yeah. on a whim, Stuart was their favourite suggestion. You know, wow. that's, that's so interesting. And it doesn't surprise me at all because um, not, not, not ha- that I have it in for the monarchy. I'm a monarchist, like Cromwell. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, the, the, ro- the royal family and, and the kind of this, the establishment, as it were, still have a major issue with Cromwell and with this period. So, I mean, he, he does not appear really on the information boards at uh, Hampton Court, where he lived there. And it was he had his court there. And uh, one of my academic colleagues actually was there not that long ago and as, a, as a, an experiment spoke to several of the room stewards and asked them, you know, where's the information about Oliver Cromwell? And kind of one person just looked a bit blankly at, at him. You know, another person sort of said, oh, I think there might be something on one of the boards in one of the rooms. And then the other one he asked just said, oh, we don't talk about him here. <laughs> oh, I had a great conversation about filming To Kill a King with one of the guys that works there. And he was telling me that he had one of the banners and everything. He was up for it. Do you know what I think? Oh, my, great. This might explain it. The big job there is shared between Lucy Worsley, who's sort of Georgian Victorian, mm. and Tracy Borman, who's more Tudor. Definitely. Maybe that explains it. Yeah, mm. and it, that, that might explain it, but it, it, it also fits a pattern that is everywhere else. I mean, I, you know, it is very rare to find this period discussed fully or given proper airtime in any, any sort of narratives, you know, like that, really. Um, the films are very whichever side, rare. Whichever side you're, you, you know, you, you feel some sympathy for, the whole period is overlooked, in my view. Mm. Well, it just says it all, doesn't it, that Dugray Scott ended up having to put £70,000 of his own money in to get To Kill a King finished. The film's fantastic. I um, love that. Crazy. I love it, yeah. I um, met I him shortly after it, and uh, I had a massive crush on him, you know, because of, <laughs> of the tumbling locks, you know. Oh, yeah. He follows me on Twitter, and I, I cry. No way. Yeah, oh, so no. He doesn't really do Twitter, but at some, on some random whim at some point, he hit follow, and I wear that like a fashion. <laughs> No, that's a good film. But there's there's so few films and books and everything set in this period. And often when they are set in this period, they seem unable to confront the period head on. They have to come at it at an angle. It's horror or psychedelic, you know, or psychedelic or a witchcraft story. Mm. You know, it has to, we, we don't, we honestly, we have a real kind of psychological problem with this period as a nation. I, I will stick my head out and say that. We do. We don't know how to categorise it. We don't know what to do with it. And we don't know how it fits into our national story. And, you know, I find that every direction. I mean, I, I, I've been studying and working on this for 15 years. I don't know how long now. And, you know, that, that's my abiding impression. And that's why I'm so committed to it, because I feel it's, you know, it's not properly understood or, or, or given enough coverage or airtime. No, I think you're right. And plus, it's, you know, for the for the royal family and for the historic royal palaces to ignore it, I actually think does them a disservice. Because if you understand the political wranglings that happened at that time that led up to 1657, and then all the mess, spoiler, after Cromwell dies in 1658, when all of a sudden, we don't have this figurehead, it actually makes you realise that the stability of of a monarchy flawed as those human beings may be and uh you know is it is a good idea because we've seen the alternative we've tried the alternative 
It, it is. And, and I'd also say that, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, it's, it's so complicated, this period. And if, if you look at it in black and white, then you might think, as you say, as a royal family or, or as an institution, oh, let's not cover that. It's kind of bad. But actually, you dig into it and it's fundamental to how we ended up where we are. I mean, there's lots of academics out there who would say we wouldn't have a royal family now without Cromwell. Yeah, yeah. That's, that is a legitimate line of thought so, yes. and study. So, you know, it, it, it's good. It's good to, to have him there as part of the part of the conversation. I completely agree. Yeah. I've got to ask because this is my obsession now. Where is his head? <laughs> is it like somewhere at Sydney? college i think probably um again not for not for any spoilers you not even know are you not like the equivalent of the president with the new football once you get in harry potter when the prime minister gets told about magic when they're admitted did you not get sworn in and then told this is where the head is you would hope you'd hope there's some sort of initiation service when you become a cromwellian historian where you're told okay this is where his head is we're telling anyone else <laughs> but actually it's only the location of the head under the chapel in sydney sussex even where it is in the chapel is only known to i think the master of the college and the chaplain um but it is an abiding mystery and it's another brilliant cromwellian mystery which i think makes him just as extraordinary in death as he was in life uh, because he is his body it's uh, and his the story of his body is extraordinary he's buried um, with in a basically an enormously lavish royal funeral um, in the Henry VII Chapel in Westminster Abbey um, when he dies as Lord Protector, and uh, he so it's it's basically the burial of a king. He's then dug up um, very very unceremoniously um, in sixteen January sixteen sixty one, a year after the Restoration. His corpse is dug up, um, and then uh, the, the intention is that they're going to hang. Uh, and hang, draw and quarter it, basically posthumously, which is enormously grim and disgusting, <laughs> along with John Bradshaw and Henry Ireton. Um, but the, what, the weird thing is they dig him up several days early and then they take the corpses to a pub in Hoban called the Red Lion and they leave them there overnight, just in their coffins um, for several days. And there's never any explanation for why the authorities did this. Um, whether they were charging admission for people to come and look at them or what was going on. And so, of course, that sparked all these brilliant, brilliant theories and myths about body swapping and about the fact that during those one or two nights that he was lying really not very heavily guarded in a random pub, his body was swapped for someone else's and someone else's was strung up on the gibbet and uh, and exposed. Um, so anyway, read, read the novel to find out more. Um, but I think probably probably the most likely explanation is that he was um, displayed like that, uh, beheaded his corpse. His head was stuck on a pike and put on Westminster Hall. Uh, and his body was <clears throat> probably thrown into a pit underneath Tyburn, which is near Mar- Marble Arch today. And that his head eventually, through through a lot of misadventures, ends up uh, being buried uh, in Sydney Sussex Chapel. That's probably the most likely explanation. But, you know, as with the best myths in British history, we don't actually know. So in steps the novelist. My mum, or my nan, sorry, told me, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. So this is me. (laughs) I don't know. I think after after the the magic that they worked on um, Richard III, when they 
when they took his his skull and they were able to recreate recreate him the university at dundee i think it is um from from that skull there's just this part of me that thinks let's dig up all the heads (laughs) (laughs) so we can actually look into their faces be massively disrespectful and problematic but uh they're going to allow it then every so often there's a request uh, and the college says no so it's not going to happen i'm afraid charlotte (laughs) don't like to be able to see them all (laughs) but yeah his head did go on something of an adventure didn't it it did it did a very exciting time (laughs) oh good fun oh amazing so for all our listeners out there remember that the puritan princess by miranda malins is available now it is a cracking read even and i would dare say especially if you're not a fan of oliver cromwell you should definitely have a read of it and you will you will thank me for it and i think we should thank miranda malins for joining us today thank you so much for coming and chatting to us oh my absolute pleasure thank you for having me what a fun fun chat (laughs) don't forget that we do exist on patreon as History Hack, and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year, and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you, and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you, and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.